Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. Um, Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2, that's on page 1081 in your few Bibles there. If you're uh, using your own Bible, it comes right after Acts chapter 1, right before Acts chapter 3. So this is, uh, this is the last week of our series on the story of redemption, part number five, wrapping it up today, a flyover, right? Just flying over the story of the Bible to see how it all ties together, how all these different pieces fit together in one beautiful picture. We've said all along that that picture, that the picture on the, on the box of that puzzle is a picture of Jesus, right? And today what we're going to see is that the shape of that puzzle is a cross with an empty tomb. The cross and resurrection is, is where we're at today. Um, you know, Shane talked last week about the incarnation and and the incarnation, the, the coming of God in the flesh is absolutely necessary to get us to the cross and resurrection, right? We never get the cross and resurrection without the manger. We never get an empty tomb without Jesus leaving heaven first. And so we'll see today how this just puts the bow on the puzzle for us. Um, in, in, this, in this text that we're going to deal with, this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And, and I want you to think for just a second about the last time we see Peter, the last time we encounter Peter before we get to this text. Now, on, on the weekend of the crucifixion, you remember the story when Peter is around the fire the night before Jesus is crucified. He is caving under peer pressure, right? Denying that he ever even knew Jesus. But then Jesus crucified and resurrected, and and it completely changes his life. The Peter that we see throughout the book of Acts and in the letters that he writes is a totally different Peter than we encounter in the Gospels. That's what the cross and resurrection did changed him. That's what I pray it does for us this morning. For many of us, that's already true, right? For those of us who are in Christ, this is the most life-altering reality that there is. Some of, some of you have experienced life-altering events in your life. Think about those for a minute. Maybe it was something, something that, that legitimately changed the course of your life. Maybe it was um, a medical diagnosis or um, an abrupt job change. Maybe it was a tragedy. Some of you have experienced life-altering events like that. What I want us to see this morning that is that the most life-altering reality in the universe is the empty tomb. Jesus died and was buried and rose again. That changes everything. So before we dig into it, let me 
Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, we come to your word. We need your help. Shane said, Lord, we're needy people. I am first and foremost among us as needy. I need your help this morning, Lord. Help me, I pray. Help me do justice to this text, to your cross and resurrection. Help us to sit under the weight of this, the beauty of this, the life-altering reality of this, and may it change us, Lord. Lord, thank you for the testimonies of how your hand has provided for us this year. Lord, we... We give you thanks for your grace that you always give us what we need, even when we don't see it clearly. So God, I pray that you would give us, even now in these moments, exactly what we need. You would open our eyes and open our hearts to receive your word. That Your spirit would even now be moving in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so we're going we're gonna to look at this text, verses 14 of Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. And I want us to think about it in terms of this series as a whole. Okay, so we're going to have three points this morning from this sermon at Pentecost. And the, the, the points are going to coincide with what we've been talking about over the last four weeks. Okay, so, so point number one is that Jesus' death and resurrection fulfills the promises of the prophets. Point number two is that Jesus' death and resurrection defeats the effects of sin. And point number three is that Jesus' resurrection, death and resurrection, secures God's purpose in creation. If you think back, if we have some guests here. So for the last five weeks, we've been doing this, this flyby over the story of redemption. And the first week, we talked about God and who he is and what he created. And we're going to see today that, that Jesus' death and resurrection secures the purpose for which he created the whole world. And, and then the next week, we looked at sin and what sin does, the effects of sin on our lives, and we're going to see today that Jesus' death and resurrection defeats the effects of sin. And then we saw that Jesus, or, or that, that God from Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets promised a redeemer, promised one who would come and deliver and save. We're going to see that Jesus' death and resurrection fulfills, we saw last week that his coming fulfills those promises. We're going to see today that his death and resurrection does the same, that it fulfills the promises of the prophets. This is the climax of the story, right? Jesus' death and resurrection is the peak, is the pinnacle of the mountain that we see as we fly over the story of the Bible. Okay, so, so let's look first at... Um, at verses 14 through 21 together. I think I have 17 and 18 as a slide. So just look in your Bibles with me, and we'll read together verses 14 through 21. So, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them and, and said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and on your old men, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The cross and resurrection fulfills the promises of the prophets. If you look in your Bibles at this sermon, the sermon itself goes from verse uh, 15, or the end of verse 14, all the way through verse 36. And about half of the sermon, as Luke records it for us, that Peter gave, is quotes from the Old Testament. This first one from Joel, and then we have two that we'll get to in a moment from the Psalms, from Psalms of David. And, and so we see even just in the amount of text that is taken up by quotations from the Old Testament, that Peter and Luke are making the point to us that that what is happening here is fulfilling the promises of the prophets. It's fulfilling the promises that God gave in the Old Testament. Now, um, you, you'll, you may remember, you can look up above uh, this text. In, in, in the beginning of chapter 2, what has happened is that the Holy Spirit has been poured out, right? This is the day of Pentecost. This is when, uh, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, He's given the, the Acts 1.8, Luke's version of the Great Commission, right? That go and be my witnesses into all Jerusalem, Judea, um, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and then he ascended into heaven, and then the Spirit came, just like he promised. And these disciples that had gathered, um, they, there were tongues of fire rested on their head, and they began speaking the mighty works of God, in all different languages. There were Jews there from all over the region who spoke all different languages, and all of them were hearing these disciples speak the mighty works of God in their own language. And they thought they were drunk. And so Peter says, no, 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 no. We're not filled with wine. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he quotes Joel, and he says, what Joel was talking about is happening right here in your midst. And this is the main thing, the main takeaway that I want you to, to, to walk away with from this, from this Joel quote. The Spirit is poured out on everyone, on everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. All who are saved, all who repent and trust in Christ, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the main point of this quotation from Joel. This is the primary difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, right? If you haven't been joining us on Wednesday nights, we would invite you to come. We're talking about the covenants, and we're about to get to the new covenant. And this is the primary difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. In the old covenant, the Spirit of God was given to particular people for particular jobs, for particular amounts of time, right? So, so we read, for instance, in 1 Samuel 16, 13, when David is anointed king, it says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. 
Just note, note the similarity of that language to what happens at Pentecost. The Spirit rushes upon David. But in the very next verse, it says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So God gave his Spirit to David, but he took it away from Saul. That was the old covenant. But this is the new covenant. And what, what, is, uh, what, what he's saying here about the new covenant is that in the new covenant, everybody who believes, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord for salvation receives the gift of the Spirit. That was the point of the text that Morgan read for us in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. This is God speaking and prophesying about the new covenant, about how God will make this new covenant with his people one day. And this is what's being fulfilled On the day of Pentecost, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey my rules. Who who is going to do this? Bryce, who's going to do this? God does this. God is the I, right? Did you, did you hear all of the I wills? I will do this, God says. I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. This is describing conversion, right? This is what happens, brother and sister in Christ, when you call on the name of the Lord for salvation. He does heart surgery, heart transplant. He takes out your heart of stone. And he gives you a new heart. He puts his spirit in you. And he causes you to walk in his ways. Thanks be to God. God does this. It is his work from beginning to end. And this promise of the spirit, Joel is telling us, and Ezekiel is telling us, is for everyone who repents and believes. It's for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Peter is saying to these Jews in Jerusalem, and Luke is saying to us that the events that that you're witnessing, the events that we're reading about, this is exactly as the prophets foretold. This is exactly how God promised it would happen, and it's now happening. The promises of the prophets are fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Point number two is that the death and resurrection of Jesus defeats the effects of sin. The death and resurrection of Jesus defeats the effects of sin. This, this really builds on the point from last week's sermon that the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, made a way for sin to be dealt with. Right? You all remember that from last week? The incarnation, when Jesus came as God in flesh, that made a way for sin to be dealt with. We see here that 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 way, that the way that sin gets dealt with is the way of the cross. That's the only way that sin could be dealt with. That's the only way that God could deal with this problem of sin. Look at verses 22 through 24 with me. Men of Israel, so Peter's continuing on in his sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. 
This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The cross was God's plan from the beginning. There was, there was never a plan B. Nothing ever took God by surprise. When Adam and Eve lost it in the garden, that, that didn't surprise God. When, when, when in the days of Noah, the intentions of man's heart were only evil continuously, that didn't take God by surprise. When, when Israel grumbled in the wilderness right after God delivered them from slavery, that, that, that didn't take God by surprise. This was his plan from the beginning. This is the only way that sin could be dealt with. The only way that our broken relationship with God could be mended and the way that brings God all the glory. This is the way that brings God all the glory. Look at, look at two verses from the New Testament epistles with me. Colossians 2 verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In Romans 3, 25 and 26, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, you either were or are, if you are not a believer, dead in your trespasses, dead, dead man walking, How does that problem of sin get dealt with? How do our trespasses get forgiven? How does this record of debt that stands against us, how does this debt get set aside? He nails it to the cross. He nails it to the cross. The cross is the only way that sin can be dealt with. In Romans, propitiation, that's a big theological fancy word. It means that that God's justice is satisfied. God's wrath against sin is satisfied. And how is that done? How is that accomplished? By the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus. In God's divine forbearance, he passes over former sins so that he can remain just, so that his justice can be satisfied, and at the same time, justify anyone who calls on the Lord for salvation. Anyone who has faith in Jesus is justified by God. He can be both just and the justifier because Jesus shed his blood. Look at verses 22 to 24 again with me. This was God's plan before the foundations of the world, right? God's sovereignty, look at this, 
This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereignty, right there, always goes hand in hand with man's responsibility. The very next phrase, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Right? These men that Peter is preaching to, this is about seven weeks after the crucifixion. And typically, the Jews would come for, um, for Passover and stay all the way through the Feast of Weeks, which is Pentecost. So they've been here this whole time. Some of these men were probably there when the crowds were screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas instead. Peter is saying to them, you crucified him. You killed Jesus. They're they're, they're responsible. They're accountable for that. But it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So how, how does God's sovereignty and human responsibility coexist? Just like this. God planned it. God knew it. There was no other way, no other option. There was never a plan B. But his plans, his sovereign will work in conjunction with man's free will and the responsibility that we bear. Wait a minute, that that seems kind of contradictory, you say. Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? It kind of does. You say, that doesn't really seem fair. Why is God going to hold them, hold us accountable for something that he planned? Yeah, it's a good question. You know what I tell my kids all the time when they say to me, Daddy, that's not fair. Your kids ever say that? You know what I say? You don't get to tell me what's fair, right? You don't define for me what is fair and not fair. I define that for you. That's what I tell my kids. That's exactly true of us and God to the nth degree. We don't define to him what is fair and not fair. He defines that for us. We are the clay He is the potter. And he has created his world in such a way that his sovereign will and our free choices beautifully coexist. And it's good news that God is sovereign. That's good news for us, right? If God wasn't sovereign, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship, number one. We'd have no reason to be here. If if God didn't know how things were going to shake out in the end, what in the world are we doing here? But he is, and that's good news. It's good news because because he's loving. Right? This isn't a sovereign God who is up there planning and scheming his, his ways of revenge. This is a loving father. A good and gracious king. You remember how he defined himself to Moses when Moses asked him what this name Yahweh meant. 
he said, Yahweh, I am that I am, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who God is. That's who God is. And that's why it's good news that he is sovereign. That's why it's good news that he has a definite plan. He has a definite plan for your life and for my life. Just like he had a definite plan for his own son's life. But just like his definite plan for Jesus included suffering, so it will be with us. Jesus was without sin, but we are not. You will sin. I will sin. We will probably be sinned against. And sin always brings consequences and pain, doesn't it? But but that doesn't mean that God's plan is somehow thwarted. God's plans cannot be thwarted. At some some point this year, you're probably going to experience a circumstance, and it's going to be hard for you to believe that God is loving, that God is a good and gracious Father. We've been there. You've been there. You've you've experienced something this year or in years past when, when you wonder, man, God, what is your plan in this? How are you working in this. It doesn't seem right now, this is not feeling very lovely to me, right? We've all been there. What do we do in those moments? We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus, who trusted that his father knew best, who trusted that God was good and gracious, even in the midst of suffering. Friends, trust God's sovereign plan. Trust his love for you. Trust his goodness. Trust that, trust that when you don't know the answers, that God does. Okay, that's not the point of the sermon, but we couldn't really go through this text without tackling that issue. So back to the main point. Jesus was crucified and killed right? This was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God by the hands of lawless men, that's in reference to the Romans, at the behest of his own countrymen who are now hearing this from Peter. But then verse 24, God raised him up. Peter says, you put Jesus to death, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Man, I love that phrase. It was not possible, friends, for Jesus to be held by death. Death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? You can't hold Jesus. Look at verses 25 through 28. David says concerning him, so here is a quote from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness 
with your presence. Keep going to verse 32. Brothers, I say to you, so now Peter commenting on this quote, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The death and resurrection of Jesus defeats the effects of sin. What did we say that the effects of sin were? This is several weeks ago now. The effects of sin, our our relationship with God is broken, right? Our relationship with one another also is broken. Sin messed everything up. Sin brought death. But the death and resurrection of Jesus overcomes the effects of sin. David, Peter says, David, he's dead. He's dead. You can go see his grave. So, Because he knew the covenant that God had made with him, he spoke of Jesus. He spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that that he would not be abandoned to Hades. The Holy One, the Messiah, the Christ would not see corruption. Jesus' death and resurrection defeats death. The effects of sin are reversed. And then he says, At the end of that Psalm 16 quote in verse 28, he says, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Earlier he said, My flesh will dwell in hope. We've talked this whole series about these glimmers of hope, right? These glimmers of hope that that God has sprinkled throughout the story for us. That, That when things seemed at their darkest, Here's here's this promise. Here's this glimmer of hope that you can hang your hat on. This is hope personified. This is hope accomplished. Fullness of joy in the presence of God. The death and resurrection of Jesus defeats the effects of sin. It's the source of all of our joy, all of our gladness, all of our hope. He makes it so that we don't have to be held responsible for our sin. You don't have to be held responsible for your sin. How does that happen? How does that happen? Look at verses 37 and 38. Now, when they heard this, when these Jews in Jerusalem who had crucified Jesus, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to him, to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The forgiveness of sins, that's the fullness of joy, right? Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's God's presence, not just with us, but in us. He has poured out his spirit on all who call on the name of the Lord for salvation. 
How does that happen? Repent, right? Repent and be baptized. We talk about this all the time. We see it throughout the New Testament. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Two sides of the same coin, right? Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord for salvation. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. And they always go hand in hand, right? You can't repent and not believe. You can't believe and not repent. You can't confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and not believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now, some of you, I can see it on your faces, are saying, wait a minute. I know lots of people who kind of believe this, who say they believe this, but they don't love the Lord. They don't follow the Lord. We all know people like that, don't we? Maybe that's you. Maybe you've said, given credence to, to, the, to these facts, but you don't follow Jesus. So, so, so what, why do I say that these things are two sides of the same coin, that you can't do one without the other? Do you know what? You know what the Bible says about belief that doesn't include any kind of following Jesus? It says that's the kind of belief that the demons have. James, James says that the demons believe that God is one. The Gospels throughout say that the demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But you know what? The demons aren't saved, are they? No. Why? Why? Because, because the demons don't have saving faith. They just, they just know it intellectually. They believe that it's true, but it hasn't changed their life. Now, demons can't be saved, but whatever. The, the point is, is that, it, is that if you're going to follow Jesus, that, in, that includes repenting and trusting, repenting and believing. And it's a belief that always includes Believing, saving faith always includes good works. Good works doesn't save us, but saving faith always produces good works. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence. That's that's what we get in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we just sang. Those who repent and believe, those who receive this word, those who call on the name of the Lord for salvation are baptized. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you have turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, but you haven't been baptized. Maybe you need to obey this text by being baptized this morning. One more point real quick. Jesus' death and resurrection and exaltation secures the promises of God. I'm sorry, secures God's purpose in creation secures God's purpose in creation. Where do I get that from? Look at verses 33 to 36 with me. So, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, Peter says, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
This, this quote is from Psalm 110. I hope it rings familiar in your ears. This was the last psalm that we preached from in our series on the psalms before we started this series. We're going to pick back up in the psalms next week, okay? This is from Psalm 110. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, said to David's Lord, remember this? God is speaking to Jesus, and he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter says, this psalm is being fulfilled, has been fulfilled. Jesus died, was resurrection, was resurrected, and ascended to the Father, is exalted at the right hand of God, has taken his seat at God's right hand, and is waiting until God says, go back. Until I make your enemies your footstool. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. He's there at God's right hand waiting. This is kind of like, this is not a perfect illustration, but this is kind of like history buffs. Chris Wilkes, you're going to appreciate this one. This is kind of like D-Day and V-E Day, right? D-Day when the Allied forces in World War II invaded Normandy and V-E Day, victory in Europe Day, right? D-Day is the cross and resurrection, right? When, when Jesus died and rose again, that sealed the deal. When, when the Allied forces took those beaches in Normandy, for all intents and purposes, that was the end of the war, right? Now, there, there were a lot of battles to be fought still. A lot of soldiers would still die, but that sealed the deal. When we secured those beaches in France, there's no way that Germany could fight a two-front war. It was over. But there was still a long time yet before VE Day came, before the victory was final. That, that's, that's what Jesus' cross and resurrection is like. It sealed the deal. The, the victory is won. But, but now we're living in this, in this battle right? We're, we're waging this war. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, and one day God will say, it's time, son. Go back. And all his enemies will be made his footstool. Remember our definition that we've used several times of, of, of the, sto- the story of redemption, It's the movement in history from creation to new creation through the redemptive work of the Father, Son, and Spirit who saves and changes corrupted people for his glory and for our good. The movement in history from creation to new creation. God's purposes in creation are secured in the death and resurrection of Jesus and in his exaltation. He will come again one day, and when he comes, he's going to make all things new. All sad things, in the beautiful words of Sam Wise Gamgee, all sad things will come untrue. That's a great line. Aren't you looking forward to that day, friends? All sad things will come untrue. If you've repented and trusted in Christ, we'll get a new body like his, and we'll reign forever with him. But if you haven't, your sin will still yet have to be paid for. How do you avoid that? How do you avoid eternal separation 
from God paying for your sins, you trust in Jesus. You repent, you get baptized, you believe, you follow Christ. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our lives. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information, and we'll see you next time.